for anyone listening, that is my sister's cat who is severely codependent on... She's so cute. ...on having someone close to her that she can access at all times. But she refuses to go downstairs. she afraid of the dogs? No, she's not afraid of the dogs. She's just a butt. Hmm. at these what is that so it's just like um victorian-esque style clothing or i don't know but it's got like cottagecore lesbian vibes and i'm like here for it you know because you are a cottagecore lesbian yes (laughs) (laughs) that's the dream um (laughs) okay look Okie-doke. Artichoke. Artichoke. Yes, okie-doke artichoke. Spinach dip. Now love me some good artichoke spinach dip. What? I'm so tired. I can't. What place? What place be we at this week? Uh, What place dost thou attend to this fine evening? We're in San Francisco. <laughs> Woohoo! San Fran. Um, yeah, I was. We had an issue with the place we'd originally chosen, and I looked through our um, our wish list of things that we wanted to do, and I found one that you wanted to do in San Francisco, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, Fresno's nearby. I'll just do night crawlers." And then you told Fresno's me something not nearby. Yeah. Well, then you told me something completely different from what I wanted to do, so I did that instead. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) there's also this one in San Francisco, if you want to do it. I didn't really know a lot about it, so I'm excited to hear it. It's... Um, But yeah, Interesting. it's two and a half hours away from San Francisco, so I don't know why I thought that would even be a good one. And then I looked it up right before I actually wrote it, so, and I was like, that's nowhere near... I so mean, that, uh, we've, we've been further. True, but I've been trying to stay, stay in the yeah. area. Yeah, Especially well, I'm, I'm glad we changed because nothing was turning up for me. I'm also glad that we changed because I found a really, really interesting story. So, San Fran, tell me all about San, San Fran. San Francisco. San Francisco. Whoop. Friend. San Francisco. Where was it? Topeka. I don't know. Every time. It is hot in a Topeka. I don't know why my brain the works. Did you hear that pop? (laughs) You also know what I just realized? We did not introduce ourselves. (gasps) (laughs) That's my fault. It's not. It's both of us. 
Uh, welcome, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> welcome back to Myths and Misfortunes. You know what it is. And we're gonna keep reminding you who we are because sometimes we need a reminder. <laughs> we just needed a reminder to be reminded. Uh, I'm Grace. That's Rachel. This is Mothman. <laughs> this is Mothman. <laughs> Mine is more, um... Cute? <laughs> yeah. This is more, like, shiny and glittery. Mine looks like it's, um... Yours looks like one of those creepy Coraline dolls. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. So, yours is what actual Mothman would look like. Mine is all those cute little comic strips that we keep seeing. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, back to San Fran. Now we're actually in San Francisco. Not literally, but like the store. Yes. You know, yeah. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. That. Uh, okay, so my sources are localhistories.org and history.com. Whoop. I actually really got into this history. I don't know why. Sometimes it happens. I just get really interested in what I'm looking but I can't stop looking stuff up and I want to add things and then I have to cut things and I have to be like is this really important to what I'm doing Mm -hmm. here's history um (laughs) before Europeans arrived two groups of Native Americans lived in the San Francisco area there's the Olone I think I think it's pronounced Olone or Olone speaking Yelamu tribe and the Miwok Mm mm-hmm They were hunter-gatherers, and they lived by hunting animals, fishing, and collecting shellfish and nuts and fruit. The use. The use. In 1769, Gaspar de Portola led a Spanish expedition overland, and he found the bay. Then in 1776, Juan de Anza led a group of settlers to San Francisco Bay, and they built a fort called a Presidio. And in 1797, a mission was founded there. In the early 19th century, whaling ships and traders came to the bay. Then in 1821, Mexico, which included California, broke away from Spain and became a republic. An Englishman named William Richardson found a settlement by San Francisco Bay in 1835. He called it Yerba... Yerba. Why did I say that? (laughs) Yerba. Yerba. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I said yerba. <laughs> um, you did not bring out the full southern drawl. It's yerba. Yerba. <laughs> yerba. I say yerba. Yerba. It's yerba buena. <laughs> to the valley girl. Um, oh, no. During, <laughs> during the 1830s and early 1840s, many people came to live in the new settlement. The mission in the Pueblo was conquered by United States in 1846. Conquered, stolen, you know how we do. The little settlement of Yerba Buena was renamed San Francisco after the bay on January 30th, 1847. Mm-hmm. At that same time, San Francisco only had a population of about 800. However, in 1848, a man named James Marshall discovered gold. Of course. Yes. News of the find reached New York in December of 1848, and as a result, people went to San Francisco in the in the thousands, and their population boomed. In 1849, the population of San Francisco reached 
25,000, which is a big jump from 800 just literally two years before. Why, yes, it is. Unfortunately, on May 4th, 1851, San Francisco was devastated by a fire, but the town was soon rebuilt. Mm -hmm. By 1853, the gold boom was ending, and in 1859, Henry Comstock discovered silver. Unlike gold, silver silver required expensive equipment to extract, so a number of silver barons were the main beneficiaries. Of course. Yes. Meanwhile, a transcontinental railroad was built and completed in 1869. Yay. Yay. During the late 19th century, San Francisco continued to develop. The first cable car service began in Clay Street in 1873. I love the idea of cable cars, and I don't know why. They're just so cool to me. Because we don't have them here. Probably. If I lived there, I'd probably be like, they're fucking annoying. I don't know. <laughs> More than likely, yeah. <laughs> San Francisco suffered an outbreak of bubonic plague in the years between 1900 and 1904, and it killed 113 people. Oof. Yes. April 18th, 1906, at about 5.15 a.m., an earthquake struck San Francisco. It measured 8.25 on the Richter scale and caused widespread devastation. Devastation. Devination. <laughs> it caused widespread devination. The it entire caused, continent's fortune was told. It caused a shit ton of psychics just... Yep. Boom. Everyone received psychic powers. <laughs> the Happy fires birthday! That, <laughs> the fires that followed caused even more destruction. They raged for three days. Yep. Afterwards, about... 28,000 buildings were destroyed and 250,000 people were made homeless. Oh. That's the, yeah. That's oof, shit ton. Oof, oof. The exact number of dead is not known, mm-hmm. but it's thought to be a lot. San Francisco is one of the many towns that's dealt with, like, devastation on such a great scale and, like, so many times and, like, every time they're able to rebuild. Yeah. Well, San people Francisco, just keep coming back, too, so. Yeah. San Francisco suffered another outbreak of bubonic plague between 1907 and 1909, and this time 190 people died. A bunch of new buildings were erected in the early 20th century. Halliday Building was erected in 1917. St. Peter and Paul Church was built in 1924. Coit Tower was built in 1933. And work on the Golden Gate Bridge began in 1934 and opened the 27th of May, 1937. Something I never knew was like shortly before it opened shortly before golden gate bridge opened yes shortly before golden gate bridge opened 11 or 12 construction workers were actually killed when a catwalk over some scaffolding collapsed <laughs> i'm sorry i am um, <laughs> and i pi- i just pictured a cat walking by and then this guy's dropping the <laughs> fuck no um it was a bit more tragic than that um it was before like any sort of, um... Yeah, but I don't know why my brain just instantly went catwalk and, oop, cats walking. Yes, cats pushed men. They, I mean, they do knock things off a lot. Um, this is true, yes. On May 9th, 1934, West Coast longshoremen, or dock workers, yeah. went on strike, shutting down docks along 2,000 miles of coastline, including all its major ports like Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, San Francisco, San Pedro, and San Diego. 
These issues included wages and hours. They wanted a dollar an hour, a six-hour workday, and a 30-hour week. They wanted union representation, too. The strike lasted 83 days and ended on, um, I don't know if that actually ended it, but uh, on July 5th, 1934, known as Bloody Thursday, fighting began between police and strikers. Two of the strikers actually died. The result of the strike was the unionization of all West Coast sports in the United States, but Mm. I'd never heard of anything like that. That So I thought that was interesting. That was one of the things... No, I'm sorry. I don't know if it's because I'm so tired or what's going on, but a six-hour workday and a 30-hour yes. week, yes. is that That's what they five wanted. days? Or is that... I have no idea. You hear that? The, like, bell ringing? Yeah. Yeah, I've been hearing it, and I don't know where it's coming from. Have you saged? Yes. Okay. Okay, so they um, they wanted $1 an hour, uh, six-hour workday, and 30-hour week. So, yeah, five, five days. Five days, okay. Uh, they wanted union representation as well, and the strike lasted 83 days on it July 5th. What? The ringing. I know, I heard it. I, I, I'm just going to assume it's like my grandma's computer or something. Okay. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah, on July 5th, 1934, uh, known as Bloody Thursday, fighting began between police and strikers. Two of the strikers were killed. The result of the strike was the unionization of all West Coast ports of the United States. Mm-hmm. I was going to add something here about Alcatraz, but I know we both have stories we want to do there, and we'll just cover it that episode. Yes, we will. After Pearl Harbor, the city's Japanese residents, along with over 100,000 other Japanese people in the country, were forced into internment camps for up to three years, Mm, forcing them to sell or give away their businesses, homes, cars, and many personal belongings. In San Francisco, their abandoned neighborhoods and many... um, Oh, shit. I lost my spot. I don't like that section of history. And it's a something... A lot of people don't like that section of history. I think a lot of people like to pretend a lot of people like, like that never happened. Right. But that is exactly why we need to talk about it, because... Yeah. It's still happening. Yes. Literally. Yeah. So, okay. I'm sorry. I just... I had to mention that, because I do... I don't like it, but it needs to be talked about. It really does. And that's why I, my first source didn't even mention it. And that's why I made sure to find another source because I, I, I was like, it's not in here. It needs to be in here. Mm-hmm. Um, in San Francisco, their abandoned neighborhoods were soon filled with black people arriving from the South to work in the war industries. Mm-hmm. In October of 1989, an earthquake that measured 7.1 on the Richter scale hit San Francisco. And some sources say nine people killed, and other sources said seven. Uh, nine like people 67. were killed. Oh, what? Yeah, some. it was very weird because the sources that I found varied wildly. One said nine, another said 67. I'm going to go with the 67. That, mm, yeah. Because it... 
yeah, seems like, like a pretty devastating. Yeah, and it was a more reputable source, so. Yeah. Then in 1992, fire swept the Oakland Hills and destroyed 3,000 homes. Like, they went through it. They rebuilt, obviously. Uh-huh. In the 90s, a boom centered on internet technology began drawing entrepreneurs into the city and raising rent. Um, which, not great. Today, San Francisco is a flourishing city. It's still a multicultural city as well. There are large Hispanic, uh, Chinese, Japanese, and Filipino populations. In 2017, the population of San Francisco was 884,000, which I thought it would be more. How many like, is that's it? that's a lot of people. 884,000. Yeah, I thought it would be at least a th- 100,000 more. I, I thought it'd be like 2 million, I don't know. True. So, San Francisco has often been a place for activists, hippies, like counterculture and apparently a large lgbtq population and i remember when i was a kid i don't know why but i always thought like san francisco was such a cool place and i wanted to go like i thought it was the coolest place for some reason and i wonder if it's because of that's so raven and princess diaries and um, and charmed were all set there yeah so i think that's part of the reason why (laughs) But yeah, I, I wanted to go there so bad when I was a kid. Well, that's also because um, those are all like super empowering shows for True. women, for young girls. So it makes sense that you'd want to be where they are. You yeah. said that's a reason, reason. Let's. <laughs> yes, it's about a psychic, uh, dried up grape. <laughs> Okay, that's a Raven, Princess Diaries, and Charmed? Yes. I didn't know Princess Diaries, so good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, the only reason I remembered Princess Diaries is because of the hills. Oh, yeah. Like the roads and stuff. <laughs> that is something they are very famous for there in San Fran. Those yeah. horrible hills. <laughs> <laughs> I... Oh my god, my last car would not have survived in San Francisco. It did not like hills at all. I remember when I was driving it to your house one time and I had to drive it through the park. Oh yeah, back when the they had the main clothes. Get yeah. Yeah, and I, there's that one hill that's just so much taller than the rest of them. I thought I would not get up it. But you did? But I did. That's the important part. Yes. All right. On to the murder. On to the murder. To the snow. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. What? <laughs> murder as in cute as snow. <laughs> I'm funny. Uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My sources are... An ID channel documentary that I found on YouTube in another language. Okay. I think it was French. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think okay. it was French because one of the comments was in French and I was like, um, okay. And then I had to find that in English, so I did. But I do not know the name of it. 
All right. I just know it was an ID channel documentary because it had that little ID logo. Good enough. Good enough. Someone else can find it. I tried. It didn't work. You did your best. I did my we best. We applaud you. I did my best. You know how many documentaries ID has? Okay. Uh, Wikipedia, the 13th floor.tv, azcentral.com, medium.com. Probably the best website ever. Here's the fucking twist.com. Oh, I like that. Murderpedia and ranker.com. Looks like we both had a lot of sources for this one. Oh, yeah, I did not say what this is about. By the way, guys, this is the San Francisco Witch Killers. We are all in danger. (laughs) 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 Not really. Susan Barnes was born... Was... Was borned. Borned. Susan Barnes was born in Arizona in 1941. She had a very good childhood, in all honesty, her father was a newspaper executive, so, you know, big bucks. And her mother was a stay-at-home mom. As she got older, she started to kind of lose interest in other people, which d- does happen. Uh, she apparently believed, even as a child, that she was psychic. Oh, really? Yeah, awesome, great, good for her. But because she felt this way, she withdrew herself from others rather than trying to reach out to people and, you know, do the normal human contact thing. Okay. She apparently only had a few friends and didn't really do well in school. Then as a teenager, she met a guy who was a few, a few years older than her, and they seemed to hit it off really well. So this is... Purely speculation, but because she didn't fit in with others her age, she married him. I assume because she felt comfortable with him and she's and he was the one person she felt she connected with. Purely speculation, though. I, I just have an issue with, like, teenagers dating people who were a lot older than that only if you are older than them is it like was it were were, was she like 17 they were 19 was she like 16 they they were 18 they didn't really say but when i hear a few years older i think two or three not okay five seven nine twelve It, it just gets a little little it, squicky yeah little, it does little, but yeah. no not not that much over old over Okay. Not not that much over either. Somewhere in that little fun range. Um, in the fun range. <laughs> in the fun range, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Look, you just you tend to get along better with people who are closer in your age group. <laughs> For some people, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes a power trip, as we will learn in this story. Ooh. Yes, I heard that again. It keeps happening. It's got to be my grandma. I don't know what else it could be. Yeah. Susan then let herself fall into the same lifestyle that she had grown up in. Her husband made good money, and she became the stereotypical suburban housewife of two teenage boys. Okay, so I guess she got kind of bored of the suburban housewife niche. Mm. So she began to look for other meaning in her life, and it looked towards the counterculture during the time. 
which okay, is counterculture. Oh yeah. Go. Oh yeah. Which was all about free love, drugs, and spirituality. Yep. Right on, man. She <laughs> all of that, great, fine, whatever. But she then began to develop this really radical interpretation of the Muslim religion. Okay. Like, she claimed to follow Allah and the Quran in all of the writings, but she rewrote it so that it fit her narrative, what she wanted out of life and what she needed. I hate it when people do that bullshit. Yeah. Like, I understand if you've got a certain set of, like, beliefs and morals, but... Believe in what you believe. Don't steal from others, other religions or cultures, because I you want to seem interesting. I don't. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um. Okay. So she then began taking LSD, mescaline, mescaline. I don't know. I don't do drugs. I can't tell you what this word is. In peyote. How do you spell it? M-E-S-C-A-L-I-N-E. Mescaline. Sounds right. I don't know. All right. Uh, mescaline and peyote. Is that right? Peyote? 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 Peyote. peyote. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless you want to get peyote. peyote. I don't know. It, yes. It's peyote. You got to add that accent. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get the little... The, yeah. <laughs> she... Sorry. She began taking all these drugs while she was hanging out with her son's classmates. Okay, look, um, um, the first half, not gonna lie, I was I was thinking, that's not too it's bad. Not I too mean, that bad. was fairly yeah. common when, you, like, the free hippy-dippy shit, um, with her, what? With her with son's, who? With her son's classmates, which is very oh. weird in itself. But she also regularly regularly seduced and slept with them. That is not okay. It is not okay. That's on top disgusting. of the fact that yeah, on top of the fact that it's disgusting because these are all underage boys. She's cheating on her husband. These are her son's friends. They are children. They're, yeah. Oh well, my God. Grace, that, that was number one. They're children. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. I, oh my God. I will never understand. I that. no, I don't. I, it, it's got to be like you said earlier, some sort of power trip. It's got to be. It, I that's gross. Yeah. According to rumors, she slept with over 150 <gasps> young men and boys. Uh, Not liking the person that she had become, uh, uh you know, infidelity, drug do drug Drug dude. Yeah, drug dude. Drug use and a slew of other things. Her husband wanted out, and I don't blame him. No. And just like that, the marriage was over. Susan then began reinventing herself, quite literally. She began spelling her name with a Z instead of an S, making it Suzanne, not Susan. Which, okay, yeah, you can do that. Wouldn't it still be Susan? No. Just... 
Though okay. it, technically, yes, it would still be Susan, but she but changed she the pronunciation too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and began experiencing visions even while she wasn't on drugs. Okay. The visions told her that she was destined for a soulmate. A partner who would follow her and do everything she wanted and be a loyal disciple. 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 Why did I say disciple? <laughs> Discipline. <laughs> That's why. Disciple. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> disciple. A loyal... You probably thought it was I typo. I did. Yeah. <laughs> so this leads us to a man named James Carson. James Clifford Carson was born in 1950... Let's keep in mind that she was born in 1941. Mm, So Uh, keeping it in that dynamic. Keeping it in that dynamic. He was born in Oklahoma to a loving family. His father was an oil engineer and his mother was a school teacher. He was diagnosed at a very young age with a rare bone disorder, which left him bedridden for a few of his very early, early, early years where he found his love of reading. I don't okay. know why the video I mean, mentioned that. Be, yeah. What else you got what to do? What else you gonna I mean... do? In the 50s, what else you gonna do? He particularly enjoyed philosophy, religion, politics, and history. Okay. As a teenager, he was apparently very much a rebel. All drugs, sex, and rock and roll, as they do during that time. Gotta make up for all those years laying in bed being a nerd. <laughs> What with that history and whatnot? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Not that we talk about it once a week. <laughs> yeah, you literally. He earned a master's degree from the University of Iowa, where he met his first wife, Lynn. After graduation in 1975, the couple packed up and moved to Arizona and had their daughter, Jennifer. While Lynn became the main source of income for the house, James chose... Sorry, what was that name? Lynn. No, did you say Juniper. Jennifer. 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 Close. (laughs) Right. (laughs) With his particular interest, yes. Um, While Lynn became the main source of income for the house, James chose to stay home and take care of the couple's daughter. Things worked like that for a little while. Um, He even became a pot dealer because, you know, that was one of his interests. So he was like, why not make money for it? Okay. I mean, there's a whole, like, science to the actual growth oh, of yeah. the plant and, like, when to do it. So, I mean, oh, yeah. people get super into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a whole thing now with medical and different, whatever. It was a whole thing before, but it's even more now that the medical aspect mm. has come in. According to his daughter, he was a loving and attentive father. However, as time went on, he progressively got more and more antisocial and was prone to angry outbursts. Mm. Lynn, of course, started to get a little concerned for her and her daughter's safety, and deciding that she could no longer stay in a toxic relationship anymore, she took Jennifer and left in 1977. So this was... Oh shit, this was only two years after they got married. No, 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 not two years after they got married. Sorry. Two years after graduation. They were married before graduation. Ignore me. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Ignore me. <laughs> Where am I? The following year, James attended a party at which he met Suzanne Barnes. 
she and him felt an instant attraction and fell deeply in love. Apparently, the first thing that Suzanne said to him was that his name was Michael. When he tried to correct her and say, no, my name is James, she said, no, you are Michael, an angel of God. Um, but she's Muslim? <sighs> Remember, that's her own. She took, she claimed okay. she was Muslim, but she wrote, rewrote it to what she wanted. Okay. So, he was Michael now, and <laughs> he also changed his name, because now his name was Michael Bear. Like, like. Bear. Like, bear. like bear. Like bear. Like the like animal. Bear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Michael like a bear. bear. Like a bear. Because his favorite animal was a bear. So he's Michael you know Bear people Carson. People have worse names. I know a plenty of non-binary yeah. people who have names like Socks. So My dog's name was Socks. But his name was Socrates. So I mean, okay, never, I'm sorry. Now, Michael almost immediately moved in with Suzanne. They adopted a full hippie lifestyle and were very into drugs, LSD to be specific. In a 2018 article written by his daughter, Jennifer, she wrote, My father immediately became a different person with Suzanne. He had a new name, a new personality, a new life. He was no longer the attentive and caring stay-at-home father that I remembered. Which is just so heartbreaking. That sucks. That's really... And this, that's fucked up. Yeah, so this is in 2018. This is like... Oh, wow. This was this, this recent? No, no, no. This article that she wrote. Oh. I was like, wait. <laughs> hold on. No, 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 no. No. They met... We're, we are in 1977. This quote yeah, is from 2018. That's why I was like, wait. They were together this long? Okay. She then recalled how any time she would be in her father's custody and staying at Suzanne's house, that she was beaten and starved. Oh. Obviously, this wasn't very often. Like, her mother got sole custody, but whenever she would visit her father. Mm-hmm. There was hardly any furniture in the house except for a water bed, where the couple would so frequently be found by young Jennifer naked and passed out from the drug use the night before. Shit. So she would be forced to sleep in a sleeping bag on the floor. And unfortunately, a lot of people are forced to sleep in sleeping bags on the floor. Like, there's, there's a big issue with housing and how affordable housing is that people cannot afford to even have... A bed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, then if she were hungry and couldn't wake her father and Suzanne, which would happen a lot, mm-hmm. she would have to climb onto the kitchen counters to try and find something to eat. She even remembers calling the telephone operator and asking for mommy in order to try and get help. That's so sad. It is so sad. Like, I, no child should have to experience that. No. We are hitting some really rough topics. When Jennifer... cry today, it's fine. Let me just cry into my fudge. (laughs) (laughs) I already ate my ice cream. Oh, darn it, Grace. You're too quick. When Jennifer finally got the courage to tell her mother everything that was going on at her father's new home, 
she wasn't sure how to properly communicate it. So instead, she said that Suzanne had hurt her. Upon further inspection, Lynn found large red scratches down her young daughter's back. Oh. When asked what happened, Jennifer said that she had asked for a back rub. Oh. And that was the result. Oh, shit. At this point, Lynn promised Jennifer that she would never have to stay with her father again. And she never did. Around this time, Michael and Suzanne decided to sell her house, get married, and become nomads in Europe. Okay. Lynn took the opportunity to leave town and settle in Southern California with her uncle, who was a former cop. He graciously took the two in, especially when Lynn confided that she believed her ex and his new wife might kill them. Just to be safe, Lynn even moved a few more times and cut off all ties with any mutual friends and contacts who might have told Michael where she lived. Like, she was... So bad to have to change your entire life Right. And it's so bad to just have that fear, too. Yeah. To always be looking over your shoulder like that must be awful. Horrible. When Michael and Suzanne were unable to become Israeli citizens, which they wanted to do because Michael was Jewish and they wanted to live in Israel. Okay. They returned home to the U.S. in 1980, settling in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. Okay, at this point, the couple also decided to formally change their surname to Bear, so it was no longer Bear Carson, now it was Bear. Suzanne now believed wholeheartedly that she was a mystic who had knowledge of past, present, and future events. During one particular LSD-induced vision, she claimed to have seen a prophet who then revealed a list of all the witches! Located around the world. And that God wanted her and Michael to kill them all in a holy war against witches. Uh This list, of course, included the president at the time, Ronald Reagan, and Governor Jerry Brown. Which was the governor of, I guess, California? I don't know. I don't know. The couple then claimed to be vegetarian Muslim warriors who believed that witchcraft, homosexuality, and abortion were destroying the world. Oh, dear. And the two of them have to stop it all for the sake of the country's future. They themselves, just them two. Just them two. They're salmon-deaning it. They're going to save the world by themselves. I wonder if this was the original plot for Supernatural. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, oh. So I don't know why they felt the need to mention that they were specifically vegetarian. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. But, I, but oh, well, okay, okay. I have a slight idea why. Okay. Um, vegetarians don't want to harm animals. Oh, sure, but we're going to harm people. Exactly. Like, they're not... (sighs) Okay, sure. But also, 
they were not Muslim. In the documentary I watched, it even said they would have been killed in most Muslim countries for many aspects of their lives. Yeah. Not only that, a lot of the shit that they do... No. Yeah. Susanna and Michael were... (laughs) Is, if you didn't see this coming, making a sort of two-person cult... But I guess that they, I guess they realized that they needed others in order to have their beliefs more widespread. Did they start a cult? (sighs) They met a woman named Karen Barnes, no relation, no relation to Susan, at a party and took her under their wings. She looked up to the two very much and was absolutely fascinated with their religious beliefs. Because, let's admit it, they were... Fascinated, I understand. Yeah, let's... that is a wild ride. It's it's Um. wild. When she heard that they needed a place to stay, she offered her basement apartment to them. Karen, no! Karen, don't do it. Don't do it! Everything was going all hunky-dory for a long time, but Karen got a little too close to Michael for Susan's liking. Mm, I feel Susan, like that's a Suzanne's. good, um, like, representation of 2020. Like, Karen, don't do it. <laughs> Karen, don't Karen, do don't it. Karen, don't do it. Um, and okay. Susan with a Z, yep. <laughs> At this point, Suzanne began believing that Karen was a witch who was stealing her health and psychic powers. Of course. It has nothing to to do with the fact that she's just another woman in close proximity to her... Husband. Her husband, who she has a clearly... Her husband's slave. Yeah. Yeah. According to Suzanne, she had received orders to kill Karen during a rainstorm. And every time she thought of killing Karen, thunder would clap as if in confirmation. However, it's a thunderstorm. Uh, Should I kill Karen? There's lightning. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's Thunder. totally there. We go. Logical. It, I, I have to do it. I'm sorry, man. <sighs> Fuck. However, according to one source, it is actually because Karen refused to enter into a polyamorous relationship with the tw- with the two. Oh. So I can't actually see both sides. Well, I can't see it because no. But you can see how each one might have been possible. Yes. Thank you for putting what I mean to say into words. Because, yeah, Suzanne could have definitely been jealous of Karen, but also Mm -hmm. she could have been pissed off that she got rejected. Yeah. Both of which... And I think it's very interesting that they are very against homosexual relationships. Were they, was it going to be like a relationship where she was not with her? Probably. Okay. But then also would come back to the jealousy thing, having to share her. You mean him? Yes. Then in March 1981, while Karen was making herself a snack, another source said while she was sleeping on the floor in the kitchen... Um, I'm going to go with the first one. Cause yeah. <laughs> Suzanne commanded Michael to hit Karen over the head with the nearby frying pan. Shit. When that did not kill her, she then commanded him to stab her. Oh my god. And he did. 13 times. In her face and her neck. Oh my 
with a paring knife of all things. Those no, things oh my God. are so small. With a paring knife, he stabbed her. Thirteen times. Two of the wounds were fatal. Her body was then wrapped in a blanket and hidden in the basement of the building, and they fled to Northern California. When the police found Karen's body, they also found a gruesome, stereotypical, satanic, or I guess I should really say Luciferian, sacrifice scene, or whatever. So not, like, strictly actually, like, Anthony... Anthony, Anthony, Anthony. No, Anthony. yeah. Not like, it, like the satanic, satanic. Yeah, like more, a, more so that there were a bunch of really weird symbols drawn all cult. over the walls, and there we go, a cult. Thank you. As well as the name Suzanne. By the time that the police connected the two and thought that they could be persons of interest, they were already completely gone. <laughs> and the investigation pretty much came to a halt and was put on hold. Wow. Karma's a bitch. The two stayed in an abandoned cabin in the Oregon woods until they were kicked out by a park ranger. They were apparently there for a while because the documentary said that at one point they had ran out of food and Michael had to go, but he didn't get back for a week. So when he got back, Suzanne was delirious from not eating and she was apparently having all these visions of all these witches. Okay. Delusional. Uh, They then found refuge with someone who allowed the couple to stay in their treehouse. However, when they became weirdly combative, he kicked them out. Yeah. I don't want some weird couple staying in my treehouse yelling at me all the fucking time. Suzanne, not wanting to leave without a fight, ordered Michael to take revenge on the owner. So he did. Oh. They, well, no, not that bad. It's still bad, but not that bad. They robbed the house, stole many, many things, including a handgun. Oh, God. And then set the house on fire. Oh, my God. In spring of 1982, the two had made their way to Alder Point, California, where they found work on a marijuana farm. They apparently spent a lot of their free time trying to convince the other workers and the owners of the imminent nuclear apocalypse. And that an anti-antichrist. <laughs> Jesus. An anti-antichrist? No, an anarchist. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not antichrist. And that an anarchist revolution was the only thing that could stop said nuclear apocalypse. Which does not make any sense at all. Please tell me I'm not wrong. That doesn't make sense, right? Well, I don't think they're entirely wrong. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a good look at their points. Let's take a good in-depth look at their points, bullet by bullet, and see if there's any meat to that theory. I would not be opposed. (laughs) Not gonna lie. When a friend of the owners came to work on the farm, he and the couple quickly butted heads and were constantly fighting and coming to disagreements. When things got heated, the man whose name was Clark Stevens? Stevens Clark? 
I did not write his first name. (laughs) 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 Whoops. I think it's Stephen Clark. Okay. When things got heated, Clark then said something that offended Susan. Suzanne. Oh. Susan. Uh-oh. For this, she ordered Michael to kill him. He did as he was told, of course, and shot Clark twice in the head with the stolen gun from the last place. Shit. They then poured kerosene all over his body, set it on fire, and covered it in chicken manure. They fled the farm. And two weeks later, Clark... Clark... Clark. 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 Clark, Clark, me boy. (laughs) Clark was reported missing. Upon doing a search of the property, they found his partially burned remains in the woods. Because Michael and Suzanne had disappeared from the farm so close to Clark's death, the police immediately considered the two suspects. However, because they were so anti-government, they were really hard to track down. Of course they were. Michael was actually arrested hitchhiking in November of 1982, but by sheer dumb luck and police error, they quickly released him before detectives were able to intervene. Of course. In March of 1983, Michael and Suzanne were hitchhiking near Bakersfield, California, when Good Samaritan John Charles Helliar picked the couple up. According to Suzanne, as soon as she saw him, she was overcome with the vision that he was a witch and needed to be killed. As soon as the couple was in his truck and they had began driving, his leg accidentally touched Suzanne's and an argument followed. Why do I feel like she was like, you know what, we need a truck, but I don't want to deal with this guy. Can you kill him for me? (laughs) This was a death warrant, apparently, and a struggle began. John was able to pull the truck over and get out, but the couple quickly followed. Hellier and Michael struggled over the gun that Michael had apparently pulled out. Uh. And Suzanne then began stabbing him. (gasps) Until Michael could get a hold of the gun, and he shot him. In plain view of hundreds of passing motorists on Interstate, I believe it was 101. Oh my god. I was imagining, like, an empty road. I know. I was, too, when I first started reading it. But no, this was, like, broad daylight, busy highway. (sighs) Someone this passing... is the first one that she's actually physically attacked, right? This is the first one. It was is crime of passion. She okay. hated the fact that another man touched her leg by accident. This story, man. Um, some pass someone passing by the scene did call the police, and after a brief high speed chase occurred when the couple attempted to get away in Hellier's truck, they were caught and arrested. While in police custody, they agreed to hold a press conference conference, where they would confess to the murders that they were accused of. During the six-hour six hour press conference, they laid out their beliefs and the reasonings for the murders and showed no remorse whatsoever and actually thought that they should be considered heroes for killing the witches. 
Oh my god. I... I, ha I have my feelings, but we'll talk about them later. Then during the trial, they recanted their confession and pled not guilty. Uh, you can't do that. You just said you were heroes. And they confessed and on they a public confess. press conference that was oh six God. hours long where they detailed out everything that they did. Hey, guys. We know that we said a couple things. Um... But mm -hmm. I just we just want to take that back real quick. Yeah. You can't hold that against us. Yeah. They were convicted of the murders for Karen Barnes, Clark Stevens. Oh, Clark was his first name. I didn't write his last name. Oops. Clark Stevens and John Hellier for a combined total of 150 years in prison each. Oh, my God. Both have filed for appeals, but the convictions have upheld. Then in 2015, both Michael and Suzanne were up for parole due to a new California legislation that allowed inmates over 60 a chance at early parole. They both ultimately refused because their beliefs remained and they had no remorse for what they had done. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> and... They believed that they had done no wrong by ridding the world of witches. And that is the San Francisco Witch Killers. So, okay. And to answer your question from earlier, yes, they are still together. They are writing letters to each other every day. But they have um, not physically seen each other since their trial. Um, hmm. Uh, so... They were obviously, they, they ought, had to be, like, very mentally ill. I could, I, mm. I don't know. I didn't say. I don't know. I, they never tried an insanity plea with all of that. They, they didn't, like. They straight up confessed. Yeah. They confessed on live TV a six-hour press conference. I would genuinely love to know, like. I would love to see them be interviewed or something by psychiatrists, psychologists, whoever. Mm -hmm. um, that's wild. That they don't, they have zero remorse. As, as popular as this case is, I actually did have a really hard time finding sources yeah. that were not other podcasts because I didn't have time to listen to other podcasts. Mm. So <laughs> that's that is a wild story. I'm really glad that I. I'm really glad that offhand. you recommended um, it. <laughs> I can't believe I've never heard this before. Um, right, it's apparently super popular, and I've uh, never heard it. I yeah, I've never heard this before. I mean, there are a lot, so it's not like we're gonna hear all of them, but that's wow. But I can. I can definitely see where there had to have been some some power play there because yeah because she was telling him she, to do things yeah she was telling him to do things and he was honestly he was just he was just going with it and I don't know I feel like I would I don't know I don't like it I don't, and like it sounds so, 
out there and wild, but I, why do I feel like it's, it's not that hard to get somebody to agree with the stuff that you want them to do? That's just, that's scary to me. I don't know why. Because something that makes humans human is their ability to have free will. And if someone is just blatantly going with everything that they're told, then where is that free will? And if they're actively choosing that, that, ooh, that's, ooh. What is your story? So, my story is about Mary Ellen Pleasant. Never heard of her. I hadn't either. Uh, My sources are Wikipedia... Uh, curbed uh, a curbed San Francisco article by Brock Keeling, another curbed San, San Francisco article by Adam Brinklow, an Afrotech article by Nera Perkins. I'm not sure if that's how you say it. A New York Times article by Veronica Chambers, uh, an Ella Baker Center.org article by Emily Lurs, a KQED article by Carly Severn, and an article by Molly Sanchez from The Bold Italic. Alrighty. Whew, that was a mouthful. Okay. That was a mouthful. I'm going to talk about Mary Ellen Pleasant, and I'll be honest, the paranormal part isn't until the very end of the story. Oh but, no. That's okay. But it usually I, isn't. I never knew about her, and I think it's a shame because she was just, wow, like, like she? You'll see. Okay. You'll see. So, Mary, I typed Wellen. It's <laughs> Ellen. Mary. Mary Wellen. <laughs> Mary Wellen. Mary Ellen Pleasant was and is still kind of shrouded in mystery. Her, her memoirs were contradictory, so okay. her true birthday and birthplace aren't known for sure. Like, they're memoirs she wrote, by the way. <laughs> She wasn't sure where she came from or how old she was. And she might not have been. She genuinely might not have been. Her birthday is accepted to be August 19th, but the year is disputed, ranging from 1812 to 1817. Her gravestone at Tula Cemetery in Napa, California, states that she was born in 1812, although most sources list her birth as 1814. Okay. Like I said before, some claim she was born um, in different places. One was that she was born in Georgia on a plantation, but she stated in her autobiography that she had been born in Philadelphia. Either way, she had been born into slavery. Mm, The identity of her parents is also unknown. Her writing stated that her mother was a, quote, full-blooded negress from Louisiana, and her father was Hawaiian, but in another version of her memoirs dictated to her goddaughter, Charlotte Downs, she wrote that she was born a slave to a voodoo priestess and John Hampton Pleasants, youngest son of Governor of Virginia, James Pleasants. In Prince any case, Pleasant, West Virginia? No. Oh, darn. In any case, she showed up in Nantucket, Massachusetts, uh, circa 1827, as a 10- to 13-year-old bonded servant to a Quaker storekeeper. Mm-hmm. She wrote she had been sent there when she was six, so it's completely like possible that she didn't actually know her Her real birth date birthday yeah she worked her way out of bondage and became a family member and lifelong friend to the storekeeper's daughter uh, phoebe hussey gardner the hussies were deeply involved in the abolitionist movement and pleasant met a lot of prominent abolitionists 
Pleasant married James Smith, a wealthy flower contractor and plantation owner who had freed his slaves. Oh. She she worked with Smith as a slave stealer on the Underground Railroad until his death for about four years. They transported slaves to northern states such as Ohio and even as far as Canada. Smith left instructions and money for her to continue the work after his death. She began a partnership with John James, or J.J. Pleasance, circa 1848. Although no official record exists of their marriage, it was probably conducted by their friend Captain Gardner, who's um, Phoebe Hussey Gardner's husband. Mm-hmm. So they... wait, was this a brother of her husband? No. No. No, the man she married was James Smith beforehand. Oh, I thought his name was Pleasant. Okay, so this is the where guy she she's got, marrying okay. now. The guy cool. I'm talking about, her second husband. Cool, 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 <laughs> husband, cool, 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 cool. Is um, John James Pleasance, and some some people think that this is where she got her last name. Some people think it was before that. It's not entirely clear. Okay. They continued Smith's work for a few more years, when increasing attention from slavers forced to move to New Orleans. J.J. Pleasance appears to have been a close relative of uh, Mothman, Marie Laveau's husband, oh. and there is some indication that Pleasant and Laveau met and consulted many times before Pleasant left New Orleans, which is an interesting note I might bring back up later. Yeah. Mary Ellen moved to San Francisco in 1852 to escape the fugitive state law because she was part of the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. Due to her fairer complexion, she could pass as white and often used her first husband's name among white people and took a job as a domestic servant and chef for wealthy businessmen. She catered lavish meals for some of the richest people in the city and used this time to listen to financial gossip and deals that went down during these meals. Mm -hmm. She partnered with a man named Thomas Bell and the two started to make money off the tips and tricks she had picked up by investing money she received after her first husband had passed and money that Bell already had in Quicksilver, and by 1875, they amassed a fortune of $30 million. Holy crap. Yeah. Additionally, she bought into various local businesses, and by the 1860s, she was known as the owner of a large chain of laundry businesses and boarding houses, not to mention restaurants. um, mm, She's doing great yeah yeah uh she built a 30 room mansion in san francisco for her and bell's family and when people found out they lived together it didn't go down well well why not it was quite a skittle because people thought it was a secret brothel (laughs) okay no yeah jj who um had worked with mary ellen from her from the slave-stealing days to the civil rights court battles of the 1860s and 70s, died in 1877 of diabetes. Oh. So, like I said, Mary Ellen could pass as white, but she didn't hide her race from other blacks and was known as the Black City Hall because she used her connections to find jobs and housing for those brought into the area by the expansion of the Underground Railroad. Gotcha. Okay. Makes makes more sense. Yeah. She met at least once with abolitionist John Brown and gave him money to help with the cause, like $30,000, which is over $700,000 today. In accordance with her wishes, her tombstone in Napa states she was a friend of John Brown. 
She wrote in one of her memoirs, my cause was the cause of freedom and equality for myself and for my people, and I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. Mm -hmm. So after the Civil War, Pleasant publicly changed her racial racial designation in the city directory from white to black. Okay. Which caused quite a stir. (laughs) I'm sure it did. Yes. And where was this again? San Fran? Yes. Yeah, I know it sounds it sounds like it's it's California. They're more like progressive. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <But> no. <laughs> Not really. After this, Pleasant was regularly called Mammy Pleasant by local whites, which was racist as fuck mm. because that's what a black woman who was forced to take care of white children or forced to be a servant to a white family was called. Mm, yeah, that's so that's super not cool. Yeah, inappropriate and racist, fucked up. The press also called her this, but she didn't approve. She said, "I don't like to be called Mammy by everybody. Put that down. I'm not Mammy to everybody in California. I received a letter from a pastor in Sacramento. It was addressed to Mammy Pleasant. I wrote back to him on his own paper that my name was Mrs. Mary E. Pleasant. I wouldn't waste any of my paper on him." Good for you, girl. That is, yes. So, close to 100 years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, Mary Ellen sued the North Beach and Mission Railroad Company in San Francisco for refusing to allow black people on trolley cars. Mm -hmm. She won this case and and many others. And as Emily Lurz put it in this uh, EllaBakerCenter.org article, she was bringing civil rights cases to court before the term desegregation even existed. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so mad I never learned about her before. Right. Why isn't she in history books? Well, racism is the easiest answer. Um, but, <laughs> well, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll get there. When the abolitionist John Brown was hanged on December 2nd, 1859 for murder and treason... Which is another story that is really interesting and I feel like people should definitely go look into because it was a lot. Uh, Yeah. Um, A note found in his pocket read, The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. When the first blow is struck, there will be more money to help. Officials most likely believed it was written by a wealthy northerner who had helped fund Brown's attempt to incite and arm an enormous slave uprising. Yeah. By taking over an arsenal at Harbor's Ferry in Virginia. In 1901, an elderly Mary Ellen Pleasant dictated her autobiography to the journalist Sam Davis. Pleasant told Davis, Before I pass away, I wish to clear the identity of the party who furnished John Brown with most of his money to start the fight at Harbor's Ferry. It was who I! signed the letter <laughs> found on him when he was arrested. It was I! Yes. Uh, No one suspected that it was written by her, though, because it was only signed with the initials M.E.P., which were misread as W.E.P. So they never found out that it was her until she confessed. I know, right? It's like upside down. Like, maybe they were dyslexic. I don't know. Maybe the letter got wet. I don't know. But, yeah. So, in the... (laughs) I didn't have a fun place to put this, but I thought it was just interesting. In the 1890 census, she described herself as a capitalist by profession. Which today I'd be like, ew, but good for her. But yeah, yeah, back then, yeah, okay. 
So going back a bit, although she amassed this great fortune and had this mansion built and lived a lavish life in many ways, her name was often dragged through the mud. Yeah. Like a lot. And especially once she was known to be a black woman, whispers Mm. grew that she had some otherworldly hold over the white people she was close to, especially when um, she became entangled in this, like, super huge scandal it was uh one article said it was like the um the og simpson case of the time it was about um in 1883 (laughs) in 1883 uh there was a trial where nevada senator william sharon was accused of seducing secretly marrying and then abandoning abandoning a young woman Lawyers for Sharon claimed that Pleasant, as the young woman's friend, had used dark forces to manipulate her into entrapping the senator. Wait, what? Yeah. That, that makes, makes zero no sense. sense. It makes zero sense. But they they said that because they were friends and because she had a reputation of... She had a reputation. Yeah, she had a reputation, quote, mm-hmm. that... She was using her power, her pull over people to entrap. It's insane. And rather than rejecting the rumors, apparently she encouraged them. Fear me. Fear me all. (laughs) It's it's rumored that she carried a voodoo doll into court, claiming she would use it to bring about his death. The wild thing, though, he did die during the trial. (laughs) Um, that was just a coincidence. It's like, guys, it's a, guys, it was a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> he wasn't supposed to take it seriously. Um, he wasn't so, supposed to give himself a heart attack. Uh, yeah. Pleasant status as a voodoo queen grew, which wasn't a great look no. to the racist white folk yeah. in the city. Because when they said voodoo, um, they meant blood magic and sacrifices and shit. And her religion may very well have been Voodoo or oh, fuck is that how you pronounce it Voodoo Voodoo, since it's thought that her mother may have been a pr- practitioner and her second husband's potential ties to Marie Laveau it could have helped it spread could, rumors. Yeah, yeah. The rumors and scandals kept coming one after another, and when her business partner Thomas Bell was found dead in Pleasant's mansion which his whole family also lived in, in 1899, his widow collaborated on a full-page smear piece in the San Francisco Chronicle with the headline, Queen of the Voodoo's Remarkable Career of Mamie Pleasant and Her Wonderful Influence Over Men and Women, which accused her of witchcraft and heavily implied she murdered Belle. She was just jealous that uh, Belle and Miss Pleasant... She may very well have been, because there were yeah. rumors that the two were actually secretly lovers. Well, hold on to your man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, so they... Which makes me think, like, there were... She, they tried to spread rumors that she pushed him down the stairs. No. I think his wife may have done it. Mmm. Mm. I don't know. Not Likely. only that, um... Unfortunately, it turns out that a lot of her assets, including the mansion, were held in Belle's name. Yeah, oh. because 
Historians believe that the pair used his name in a lot of the business dealings to facilitate what, I mean, it would have been uh, probably more difficult for a woman and especially a to, black yeah. woman. So, <sighs> Bell's widow sued Pleasant and won control of the Bell estate, which meant what that she basically also controlled all of Pleasant's estate. Yeah. So her fortune everything gone gone yeah her 38 bitch uh, absolutely absolutely her 30 room octavia street italiante mansion which she designed built and furnished became known as the thomas bell mansion and when she died in 1904 in her 90s in poverty i'll add her obituary obituary (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I'm still thinking that lady's a bitch in my mind. Old bitch. Um, <laughs> um, her obituary in the San Francisco Examiner was titled, Mammy Pleasant Will Work Weird Spells No More. Yeah. Today in San Francisco, there's a Mary Ellen Pleasant Day and a Mary Ellen Pleasant Park, which is the smallest park in San Francisco. And it's basically just six trees where she that she planted, uh, six eucalyptus trees in front of the mansion. But her trees are like preserved with her name. Mm-hmm. That's, um, I mean, obviously more should have been done, but oh, that's absolutely still it should have been still her home. Um, <sighs> yeah, there is a commemorative plaque that reads Mary Ellen Pleasant Memorial Park, mother of civil rights in California. She supported the western terminus of the Underground Railway for fugitive slaves, 1850 to 1865. This legendary pioneer once lived on this site and planted these six trees placed by the San Francisco African American Historical and Cultural Society, 1814 to 1904. Oh, okay. So, I bet you're wondering, when is the paranormal aspect coming? I know, in? yeah. Where is, where are you going, Grace? Come on. This is super short and I'm super sorry. After her death, residents and neighbors reported seeing her spirit in the mansion built on Octavia, where she previously lived. Mm -hmm. It's been dubbed the Mystery House by locals. The house actually burned down in 1925, but apparently her ghost still haunts the Mary Ellen Pleasant Memorial Park. All six trees? Yeah, all six trees. (laughs) It It said sometimes you can see her there. It's also said that if you stand on the plaque and make a polite request that it'll be granted. Oh. Rumor has it that she throws rocks and even branches on the heads of people who don't show her proper respect or just people she doesn't like. Same. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately that is all, but I was going through Urban Legends of San Francisco and I, I knew that I could not pass up this story because... That, I I just, I literally couldn't, she was so interesting and I've literally never heard of her before and what happened to her was racist, unfair, and tragic and she should be known. Absolutely. Well, as unlacking as that was in Paranormal, everything else about it was just gold and I'm so glad you told it because... I know, I I really wish there was more Paranormal (sighs) stuff. I I wish I could have found some, like, I saw her this one night when I was going this way and I... I saw her on the anniversary of her death. (laughs) Yeah, but I... I, it, It was just too good. To pass it, yeah. I, it was so interesting. The more that I read about it, I was like, oh. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. 
but we can definitely come back because I found a couple of other things too that were really interesting so I want to do this absolutely too. well we have to come back anyway because I still have the other one to do yeah Okie doke. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune, or you can search for us using the full name Myths and Misfortunes. We'll be there. Oh yeah, we'll be there. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Also, please, 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 please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. And by the way, guys, thank you Mm -hmm. so much. We just hit our thousandth download. Yeah, we know it's going to happen a lot sooner than this point for their podcast, but we don't really care how long it's taken. We got there. We appreciate it. Uh, So please tell your friends, family, get, get us up there, get us out there, spread the word. So that we can bring you all some more fun, spooky, and historically accurate accounts. Stories, yay. Yeah. <laughs> our, music... <laughs> <laughs> our music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below, if I don't leave out a random period somewhere. Okay. and uh don't forget to rate review and subscribe yep and thanks so much for listening guys bye bye